Welcome to False Neutral, member of the Hooniverse Podcast Network. My name is Garrett, and I am here with your other hosts, Pete and Eric. Hello, guys. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Garrett. Good. <clears throat> I see you got your dog with you again today, Eric. Yep, she's uh, sneaking in the back here. Yep. Just a little thing. Just a little little 180-pound mastiff. That's all. You ever think about putting a seat on the back of your motorcycle to bring your dog with you places or even a sidecar i think it's more like put a seat on the dog and (laughs) the dog no kidding i uh i knew someone she uh she used to be part of a group of people in chicago racer racer friends and some just rode on the street and she had a late 70s goldwing that was a four-cylinder one i think not so fared, but she had a, a deck on the back and a tent, and she would bring her dog with her when she rode. Yeah. I recently was driving on a main road here in Vancouver, and there is this one of those stretched out sport bikes, big burly dude riding on it, had leathers on, and right on his gas tank was this chihuahua with doggles, you know, goggles, mm-hmm. but dog wearing them. Just this tiny little chihuahua wearing a matching leather suit. It was probably one of the most interesting dog motorcycling riders I've seen. I just I just think about what's going to happen to that dog, especially when they're sitting on the tank or you know something <laughs> like that. I think, man, I wouldn't want to be in a panic situation and be thinking on top of everything else you need to think about. I need to hold on to my dog. Yeah, no kidding. It was actually it had this like what looked to be a custom made harness, and it was like strapped down onto the tank. Oh wow! Yeah. I mean, the dude obviously doesn't go anywhere without his chihuahua on his tank. But <laughs> the uh, the one thing I always thought about is dogs' ears are so sensitive to begin right. with. Then you get all that wind noise. Yeah, uh, that's. Uh, but I don't know. Who knows? Who are we to judge? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We need to ask if there's any old business. I've right. got a couple of things. First of all, I want to remind everybody, I, I, I'm going to try and come up with some kind of clever prize if you can identify the four motorcycles in our intro and outro little things. And you guys, we don't hear them when we're actually recording it. I add those. I add them in post. So uh, when uh, you guys are, are eligible with everybody else to try and figure out what these are. Uh, also, last week uh, we had... Uh, Richard Varner on, and he challenged me to pick a rider. He actually said in the 390 Cup Series to watch for this this season. But I, I actually was out on Facebook, and Moto America posted a really great profile with Dakota Momola, who is yep. Randy Momola's son. And uh, I was such a huge Randy Momola fan back in the day. He was one of the, for those of you who are youngsters and don't remember the... <laughs> Paleozoic racing period. Uh, he was one of the very first riders to really radically hang, hang off the bike and, and drag knees and elbows and everything else. And he was known for just remarkable saves. And oh yeah, 
I, I loved Randy Mamola so much. And now this is his son, Dakota. And Dakota grew up in Spain. So uh, he's... he's uh, I'm such a huge Hispanophile with my Boltaco <laughs> fanaticism and uh, the, the bike builders of Barcelona that I'm... I think that kind of just adds to it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be watching Dakota very closely this period this uh, season and see how he does. Yeah, he's been racing in uh, off and on in CEV. I think he tried to get a ride in Moto Two and that kind of fell apart. Um, so he's come back to the U.S. here to uh, to try and and run this year. And he's running in Super Sport, I believe. Six hundred. Yeah, this is a Super Sport class. So. Um, yeah, he should be good. And yeah, if, if you're not familiar with Randy Mamola's work, just Google in the YouTube. Just Google into YouTube. Just look on YouTube for Randy Mamola saves, <laughs> and uh, and and you can. There's about a 45. There's probably 45 minutes worth of highlight reels of, of him, especially on the old Kajivas and stuff like that. So uh, Randy also has the distinction of being the only person to ever be the runner-up uh, in the championship four times. Mm-hmm. Wow! And never won it. Never won it, but was runner-up four times. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Hey, I was going to say he's the Buffalo Bills of the uh, racing world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you got to remember he was racing against Freddie Spencer, uh, Wayne Gardner, Eddie Lawson, Barry Sheen. Those are big names. Early, early McDowan years. Uh, you know, Kenny Roberts, Kenny Roberts, Wayne Rainey. <laughs> you know, I mean that yeah. was. He was in the gold. He was truly in one of the golden eras of Grand Prix motorcycle racing yeah. in the late seventies through the early nineties. To come up runner up against those people is uh, no shame of any kind. Yeah. Also, I happen to be listening to what I guess some people could consider our our competition. I was listening to the Cafe Racer podcast this week. They were talking about beginner's bikes and what came up but the TW200. And one of the guys said exactly what we did, that no matter how experienced you are, there's still a blast. And he was like, man, I want to find one. But he was going to – one of the guys was going to buy one for his wife. And he said, but I can't find any used because the used market, they're just not out there. And when they are, they're really expensive. And so there was another uh, (laughs) vote of confidence. And not to uh, eliminate our own traffic, hopefully, but – it's a good podcast. I, I would yeah. recommend that as well. Yeah, I uh, well, I don't follow their podcast, but I do. They have a Twitter feed that I look at, um, and you know, I feel like the TW two hundred is such a natural choice. Uh, any conversation that revolves around a beginner bike, or really any motorcycle that you can keep forever, TW two hundred should firmly be in that, and they're inexpensive enough to where you can buy them brand new. And uh, not really worry that much about depreciation. So, absolutely, I agree. Well, today I think that we're talking about garage projects, tools, things of our own interests in our own lives rather than the lives of other guests that we've had, some of the things that we're working on. I want to know about your guys' project bikes and anything that you might be working on, motor-related I have I have one, and I might have another in the very near future. Ooh, Ooh do this tell. is exciting. Well, the one I have is the one I've talked about a few times, and, and that's the uh, Yamaha XS400. Uh, I got it for my father-in-law. He bought it new. It sat in the garage for 
20 some odd years uh, yeah. and he finally gave it to me. And so I've been in the process of cleaning up for a while. I didn't touch it last year just because he got sidetracked with trying to get our house ready to sell and which it didn't, but we're trying again. And there's a whole nother topic of why some things aren't <laughs> moving along this year so far either. So I've got to coat the tank for that still. I need a new chain or I probably need a new chain, uh, but I definitely need new tires. So that's and, and rebuild the petcock. So I've got the stuff to coat the tank. I've got the rebuild kit for the petcock. And once it once it runs, then I'll worry about putting new tires on it. And it's OK. I, I've ridden it. It's fine. It's a it's a good little run run around bike, you, you know, typical UJM type of machine. Uh, but last weekend, Hang on, I, I, need to st- I need to stop you right there. A UJM is a transverse four cylinder bike. You cannot call a twin a UJM. I, <laughs> I'm going I'm to be, I'm gonna be to really me, pedantic and say, no, it's like not. <laughs> <laughs> and the, that standard style, naked, air cooled, mid seventies. That's, you know, that's me that says that that's UJM. Oh, oh, this you know, universally universal. How's that? <laughs> that era. <laughs> Last Saturday was it Saturday or Sunday? It was Saturday. I was running around. Yeah, I had some stuff to do. Nothing like going to a Cars and Coffee when the uh, snow starts flying because it's you know yeah. thirty four degrees out. But so I stopped and uh, up by where that was and uh, had lunch with a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a long time. He used to he's he's a guy who owns a. Uh, the Aprilia RS125 and Aprilia RS250 GP, XGP bikes. We we're talking about stuff, and turns out he's he's a, a bit of a hoarder when it comes to motorcycle stuff. So he's got parts from four different CBR600 F2 F3s that he's going to put two together to sell. And he basically offered me one of them if I wanted as like a track bike for say under fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah, and since I've had a bit of an itch to at least go on a track and run at some speed, you know, we may um, that may be joining the the fleet as, if we can get the hell out of this house and into a a place that has a, a true two car garage. Yeah, that's a great bike to take on a track. In fact, the F two I think was probably one of the very first, like what you would call a sport bike that I rode after I was riding my CM four hundred C. Uh, started riding one of those for a short period of time. But there's so many parts available for them. I mean, really good, inexpensive, cheap track bikes. So. And talk about a bulletproof motor. Man, yeah, absolutely. Things, you can abuse them and, and not take care of them and run them way past Redline, and they just keep going. And, and yeah. that was the attraction, is, is not just the entry price of you know somewhere between 1000 and 1500 bucks. I'll probably have to buy some tires for it, okay, whatever's throw another 300 bucks at it. But it's just the fact of if it gets completely trashed, I'm not out that much money. And right. if it goes down the road, all you got to do is go on eBay and, you know, it's a billion used parts for not a whole lot of money and it can go get thrown back together relatively, relatively quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll be looking for that one. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got, I've got two things. One of them has been moving at a, a truly glacial pace. Uh, I started it in 2010, and it's about 10% complete. I started <laughs> I started out years ago. I happened to be on eBay, and I saw a swing arm for one of the very first Monoshock YZs. It was a 1976 YZ 125C swing arm. And I thought I'd I can build a motorcycle with the rest of that. <laughs> well, well, I thought, hey, that would be a really cool way to really cheaply do 
a monoshock conversion to a, like an old street bike, yeah. mount the shock up high above the carbs, and you could probably find a frame that that would be compatible with. Well, that sat on the shelf for years, and I had had three bull tacos and uh, road raced one. Uh, my very first article I wrote for Hooniverse was about the bull taco streaker, and I really liked it, but I thought if I get one of these really rare collector's bikes... I'm going to pay through the nose, and I'm not going to really be able to take it out and use it the way I want to. So I should build something. So I got an itch to do a larger version of what a Streaker and Metrala would be like with uh, either Frontera or Persang engine. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Again, I was out on eBay one day, and I found a 1977 Persang 360 frame that was very close to my old 250 that I had turned into a road racer. And I said, man, I know there's a Suzuki front end that's a really slick fit to go on there. You just need to make a little spacer and it bolts right up. That's what I should do. 20 bucks was the minimum bid, so I went ahead and bid it. And I, and I got it from a junkyard down in Texas. So I was like, okay, hey, would this swing arm that I have fit on this frame? And that's where it started. I promised myself six to eight hours a week, $50 a paycheck was all I was going to spend on this. The first idea was going to be how cheaply can I build a motorcycle from just buying used parts? Could you actually build a mongrel that would be functional for cheap? And the answer is absolutely no, no way. The (laughs) The amount of time and the cost just spiraled out of control immediately. Yeah. I have I have spent more in rear shocks on this thing trying I I think I have four or five different shock absorbers sitting on the shelf trying to get something just to mate those two together. There's all kinds of things like this swing arm mounts totally different than the one that was from the Boltaco cuz Boltacos have a mm-hmm. a swing arm with a gap in the center and the rear engine mounts actually mount to the swing arm pivot bolt in the middle of the swing arm and the swing arm pivots on either side of it. Well, this one there's no way you could do that. All of a sudden, it's like, I can't mount the rear of the engine. So it took me a year just to figure out how to mount the swing arm. And then about a year and a half ago, I thought, man, I really want to... I, I'd gotten rid of my bikes for the Spider, and I really wanted something with two wheels. So I bought a CL125S I found on Craigslist. I don't know, 45 minutes west of where I live. It was the same model as my first bike that I got in 1980. So I was all excited. Yeah, I'm going to go out and buy this paid $700 for it and got it home, started looking at it, and it was in so much worse shape than I thought it was. Yeah. The exhaust system was completely rusted out. All the seams were just ready to come apart. There was no way to save the whole back half of it. It's one welded piece, and it's unobtainable for any kind of realistic price because they only made that exhaust two years. Yeah. Is that an issue out where you're at, is rust and corrosion? It depends. If you if you garage them, it's not a problem. If you leave them outside in the wintertime, yeah, you're going to have problems. On a 1973 Honda, it's a problem everywhere. They all rusted on the exhaust. Yeah, I've got a 70 and a 77 Honda Trail 70. Both are actually in pretty good shape. The 70 is more of a project, and so it definitely does have some rust. The 77 I got, um, somebody restored it at some time. But just thinking about that, on Craigslist in this area, it's actually pretty easy to find them that aren't 
super rested out. But then again, leading back to what you're saying, it just kind of depends on how they're stored, how they're cared for. But I did want to go back to um, the project bikes and your swing arm dilemma. There's a motorcycle that I've been working on for also a number of years, and I just uh, posted a picture up. It's actually on my Twitter page, too. This is in its current state. I posted a picture a few days ago on Twitter of where I'm mocking up the engine. But this is just a, a complete mutant bike. The frame is loosely uh, based off of an RD400. The swing arm was custom built. And as you'll see, it's converted into a monoshock. It's got a motocross front end on it that's been, it actually hasn't been shortened yet. I'm, uh, I have it compressed to where I want the ride height to be, and then I'll have it shortened to that amount. But that's going to have a four mil stroked RZ motor in it. <laughs> but also the tank is all aluminum raw. There's no paint on it and there won't be any paint on it because the tank is so perfect. Actually, you guys might know, I do not know what that tank is from. I got it with the frame, and uh, the rear tail section is a custom-made piece. But this is a motorcycle that I've been working on for quite a number of years, and I probably have quite a number of years left before it's finished. I laced the wheel set. The hubs are from a Kawasaki KX250. There's a uh, 17-inch by 4 rear rim and a 17 by three and a half front rim that I laced up together. But this is uh, one of the projects that I've been working on for quite some time here. Similar to yours, the swing arm that's on it actually is kind of the second generation. I built one. I didn't like it, completely changed it, rebuilt another one. And that is the current swing arm that's on it now. So it's a labor of love. It'll probably cost way more money than I'll admit to my wife to build it, but it's still a neat little project. Well, one of the things I'm doing as part of this project that results from the initial let's try to do this cheaply, I have a Quicken category set up for it. So every yeah. dime I've spent on this. Are you sure that's a good idea? Yeah, I, I, I really want to, to be able to say this is the total of what it cost me when I got all done because it's not going to be at all worth what the final bike is. Garrett, I, I just finally got to watch Guy Martin's Wall of Death show that was yeah. done in the UK. And as soon as you put your, your thing, I'm like, oh, hey, wait a minute. This looks familiar. So then I'm like, wait a minute. I saw that last night. And, and it looks very similar to what Guy Martin put together. I, granted, he did a he used a BSA motor, I think he said, in his. But very, very similar yeah. ideas you guys have on, on these machines. Um the engine that's in mine, those are actually, it's the RZ350 cases, but those are Yamaha Banshee cylinders on them. Just a little bit easier to come by, and they're really very similar. And and so I really like the lightweight two-stroke power, so that's the, oh, yeah, the engine absolutely. that it's going to use. So, But that's by no means the only project that I'm working on. I have a small or large motorcycle collection, depending on if you ask me or my wife. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, I have, and, and I mentioned it in a comment on a Hooniverse thing yesterday, a 1970 Suzuki T350 Rebel. And the motorcycle uh, was originally, when it was new, converted to a road race bike. And it spent a couple of years under a rider racing professionally before it was returned back to a pseudo street trim. All of the racing bits were left on it, except it was restored with a headlight and a taillight and some other functional bits to make it legal for road riding. 
And it was done so until the early 80s, until a museum up in British Columbia, Canada, picked it up. And it stayed there all the way up until about a year ago when the museum was going out of business. I heard of it through the motorcycling grapevine. The Suzuki has really been a life-changing motorcycle for me. What was life-changing about it? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, so, and, and so I'll preface this with saying a couple of things. I've been around motorcycling forever. I've ridden all kinds of motorcycles. This one in particular, um, it's almost like you don't, you don't really know how a motorcycle is going to affect you until you ride one. This particular one, it's not enormously fast. It is really a pretty motorcycle, but there's something about you, you could tell instantly when you started it up and when you wrote it, that somebody built it with an enormous amount of knowledge and care and love. And everything works so perfectly together. It's really difficult to explain. It's so the engine matches the chassis just right. The suspension matches the weight just right. And it, it was almost like the motorcycle was built for a rider identical to me, but 40 years earlier. It was this really kind of surreal experience the first ride that i took on it it kind of restored my views of motorcycling as a whole i don't really know a better way to explain it other than if you're a car enthusiast and say you've always driven modern cars say you're a porsche fan you've driven modern porsches but then you drive a 1956 porsche and it just it like returns you to a point where you realize that that's what automobiling is all about. Well, for me, this kind of led me to what motorcycling is all about. It was just a, a crude motorcycle that really didn't do all of the things that a modern bike does. But it, for me anyways, it definitely gave me new insight into what motorcycling really is. I had a Suzuki GT750 triple that was very much like that for me. Yeah. Somebody on, on one of the forums has offered me a GT750, but with the disastrous mistake I made of putting one, what I thought was going to be a quick project in front of the one I really want, yeah. I am not in the market of buying any more project bikes, cars, anything for, yeah. for a long time until Boltakenstein is done. Yeah. <laughs> well... And, and I can say that with this motorcycle of mine, I wouldn't expect anybody to have the same experience that I did. I don't think that uh, Pete or Eric, you guys could jump on it and really have that same really visceral and emotional experience that I had. It was just almost as if that day and that time, this motorcycle was just the perfect one for me. Can't say that it would be for everybody. I'm sure that there's people that would really appreciate it, but... Um, for me, it was just definitely, it was the motorcycle that brought me back to the roots of motorcycling. I was also going to mention, there's a couple other motorcycles that I've got in the shop. I, as mentioned on an earlier episode, I have a 1976 DT400. It is an enduro that I bought a couple of years ago. All original, all stock, except for a electronic ignition system that I put in it. 
because this one doesn't need a lot of work, I don't do a whole lot to it. Just kind of tinkering here and there. I like to modernize and improve little things. It has probably the world's smallest muffler for the <laughs> displacement of engine. And, and it was so bad. I would ride this thing like almost embarrassed because I would go. I live in almost a rural area. Not far up the road, there's horses and livestock. I would almost kill horses riding by because it would startle them so badly. So, <laughs> and, so, and so is it is it louder than the pipe on Cager's KTM 125? It, it, <laughs> this one is probably the loudest motorcycle I have ever owned with a muffler. <laughs> and, and because I, I was wondering if something was wrong with the muffler, like maybe it blew all the packing out, so I took it apart only to find that these old Yamaha Enduros the muffler is roughly 12 inches long. There is only about two inches of uh, packing in it. And I don't mean thickness. I mean, like, the length of it. There's just the perforated tube. And at the very end, there's, like, two inches of packing. And it's, like, the worst design in the world. And so I, I wanted to quiet it down. So in the ATV world, there's a company called Shearer. And they make uh, aftermarket exhaust pipes for Yamaha Banshees. But... They, they specialize in making pipes for um, big board and stroked Yamaha Banshees, so big displacement motors, which the 400 is. And so I purchased a silencer from them, a muffler, and uh, built a whole new stinger pipe, mounted the muffler to it, and I was all super excited because this thing was finally going to be quiet because now I have, instead of two inches of packing, I now have 12 inches of packing. And it is roughly five decibels quieter. It still startles horses and livestock, small children, women crossing the street. I mean, it is almost <laughs> embarrassing to ride. But I love the way that it looks, so I keep doing it. It sounds like my car, but yes. <laughs> I also um, have a 1969 Vespa Supersport 180. And it has been in the family since it was new. My wife's family is actually where it started. Her great uncle came home from the Vietnam War and wanted one. And so he purchased it brand new uh, up in Tacoma, Washington, near uh, where you were uh, stationed for a while near uh, Lewis McCord. Mm -hmm. Pete. Um, but at any rate, uh, purchased this uh, Vespa new. It's... Um, Went to my wife's parents, and then my wife and I had a son about a year ago, and her parents decided that my our son would uh, have the Vespa. So now I'm just kind of the caretaker of it until my son is uh, 16. But it's got a 1,000 miles on it. It is in near-perfect shape, other than it's with motorcycles and, and many things. If you don't, If you don't at least ride them, they deteriorate on their own. You can't just let something sit uh, unless you really go through a lot of preventative measures to make sure that it's going to last for that long. Um, so there are various things that it needs. Uh, it has the original tires on it, and those really need to be replaced. Um, the air filter just fell to crumbs from sitting. Um, but it still is a perfectly functional motorcycle, and I ride it around the neighborhood just for fun but um it needs little maintenance here and there still an incredible example of a vespa that really hasn't been touched in 40 years a gentleman that i very much respect who knew a lot more about machines than i ever will thought that having too little mileage on a machine turned him off just as much as too much yep his, i agree 
his uh, recipe for maintaining a bike indefinitely, he said once a month, take it out in the city so that yeah. you're working the brakes, you're working all the levers. And he said, and then take it out on the highway, get everything up to temperature so you're getting all the condensation out of the inside of the engine. You're bringing all your fluids up to temperature. You're warming up all your seals and all that kind of stuff. And he said, you do that, maybe you're going to do about 20 miles if you're not putting 250 miles a year on the on it, you're not taking good care of it. And he said, you take look yeah. at a bike that has uh, 125 miles on it, and it's 30 years old. He's like, eh, no way. Unless you want to park it in a museum somewhere, I wouldn't touch it. And I that always I've always remembered that because I thought that was really good advice. And that's for cars as well. I'm because I'm I'm shopping and I'm not shopping for my next vehicle as soon as the Mustang is sold, <clears throat> and I'm looking at either a 911 or a Cayman and early yeah. 996 Sarah, cause they're ridiculously cheap right now. And, uh, early first few years Caymans cause same thing. They're pretty much at the bottom of the depreciation. And, you know, when you can buy a, a Porsche for the same price as you can buy a Ford focus ST, um, yeah. that's not a hard decision to make. Right. Right. Um, not too hard of a decision anyways. But yeah, what I agree with that. The same thing. Like I've seen some people bragging that their vehicle only has like 25 or 30,000 miles and it's a 2002. And I'm like, what kind of special snowflake is this thing? I mean, was, you know, yeah. did you make sure that the temperature was right and there was no humidity and, you know, it hadn't rained a week before, a week after, before you took it? I'm like, no, this, these are vehicles that need to be, you know, that. And, and if you really want to see the bad version or how bad that can get, just look at any, any Italian vehicle. Yeah. Uh, same same thing, but yeah, motorcycles, yeah, and, and I can see that from the 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 the, the XS four hundred I have because they essentially have to, you know, have to have tear it down and rebuild it because it only has a thousand miles on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the lubricants and and other things they need to circulate, which is natural, it's obvious. But then there's even electrical things, which I don't know why it would make any sense to use them regularly for them to last, but. It just seems like when things get used lightly, gently, but consistently, they last longer than if they're either overused or if they just sit and, and are not used. Yep. I have been trying to get this CL125 licensed and on the road for uh, what I think is a year and a half now. And Okay, so I had to make an exhaust for it. I, I kind of knew that right away. And the engine itself runs great. I didn't have to mess with that, but it needed new tires, and it needed some new cables, and it needed new grips. And I got into all kinds of electrical problems that were just awful. It had broken wires that would sometimes make contact <laughs> with um, you know, uh, whatever was cutting into it and sometimes wouldn't. And all the insulation was brittle and weird 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 things going on with and it took me about six months to and i found out this had been wrecked a whole lot worse at some point in his life than i ever realized the uh, steering stop was bent on it and the headlight ears had been bent back into shape and were cracked on the back where i couldn't see it and all kinds of stuff i invested in really nice headlight bracket and all this stuff, and I'm just spending money and spending you know, time and everything, and I've just one thing after another. Finally, it's like, okay, I think I'm pretty close here. And yeah. I take it out and I drive it, and if you left the fuel on, it would it would pour out of the carburetor. Yeah. So I was like, okay, i got to fix that, which I didn't realize until I had it running well enough to actually 
leave the fuel on. And go, oh, <laughs> yeah. I ordered a, uh, a gasket and a float needle for the carb. I am. I hesitate to say I think I'm almost done because every time I think I'm almost done, yeah, another thing pops up. Because I had to replace the petcock, and you know, I actually had to solder the bottom pinholes in the bottom of the tank, and then yeah, acid etch the inside. And you're like, okay, I can run it. No, it's leaking fuel. Okay, I got to do this. I have been through four speedometers. I have bought not only the original but three other speedometers that I bought on eBay. Going up in value each time, and every single one of them has been non-functional. I've tried to disassemble both of these, and they were oh, they're, yeah. they're plastic shell. They're just glued together. Yeah. And one of them I actually put in my lathe and very carefully cut apart. And the, the problem is the inside is open to the environment. There's, it's not yeah. sealed. So as soon as you open up, there's old spider's nests in there and <laughs> rust and corrosion and it's like okay no there's nothing here worth saving so i didn't even open up the third one like ah, i'm sure it's the same way yeah so is this where you just buy a bicycle speedometer and call it good i'm actually yeah. i'm actually tempted to just clamp like a tom tom to the handlebars put it on yeah the the speedometer <laughs> mode on the gps and, and just use that unfortunately i really wanted to capture the feeling of what it was like when I first had my bike. And the one thing you see while you're riding the whole time is the speedometer. And those old Honda speedometers right. were so cool looking. That's the other thing I need to resolve now and figure what out. Year, what year is this motorcycle again? It's a 74. 74. So does it have the integrated speedometer bucket headlight? No. Like, it does, it okay. No. You can get really cheap speedometers for these, but they're all from the Philippines or Taiwan, and they're all in kilometers per hour. Yeah. So I don't know if it is uh, similar to the Trail 70s, and this might not even be an option for you either, but one of my Trail 70s, it's an earlier one, so it's 6-volt, but I got one of those Chinese 125cc engines for it, and then with it is uh, basically a whole new wiring system, and I installed the wiring system and and the new motor and all that. So... um, from an outside perspective, it looks original, but everything is, I, I don't know if I would call it upgraded because it's going from Honda to the $13 Chinese wiring system from eBay, but it does And work. no, that's not an upgrade. <laughs> no, it's not an upgrade. However, uh, everything works, which I'm happy to report and has for, you know, since I did it a couple of years ago, I just, I did put all the 12 volt bulbs in it. I don't know if, if they make similar things or if the wiring is the same for yours as it is the Trail 70s, but you know, for not a lot of money, you could um, kind of redo most of the mechanical bits underneath it. And as far as the speedometer goes, I don't know if it would be an option to just have one of those, um, the gauge face printed at like a sticker shop. I did find some really cheap ones that uh, are for uh, CT70s and CT90s. And I, right. so I went ahead and bought one for like 20 bucks just to make sure it works. So I'm going to rig that up. And if that works, I may actually go out and get one of the integrated buckets from a CT90, which actually takes yeah. the same headlight as mine, and just do it that way. Unfortunately, yeah. this is 6 volts, so I'd have to go out and all my indicator bulbs, I'm going to have to go out and buy 6-volt bulbs for that, just like I did for the aftermarket right. turn signals I bought. It's just mm. one thing after another after another. And meanwhile, I keep walking past this pile of parts, and I'm like that's the one I really want to be working on, and I haven't for a <laughs> yeah. year and a half. 
I truly love working in a workshop as much as I like going out riding. You know, yeah. I, I like them both equally. I wouldn't want to do one without the other. But it's pretty darn expensive. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, since I started this project, I have bought a spool gun MIG welder, a TIG mm -hmm. welder, which I can't use yet because I need to get 220 in my garage. And uh, yeah. I need to go out and spend a couple hundred dollars on welding gas bottles because I just bought a yeah. welding cart that they both go on. But I need to put the bottles with them so I can get away from the, the crappy flux core welding, welding wire. Welding wire. And yeah. so it's like, oh, I got to spend all that money. Fortunately, my wife, my my wonderful, glorious wife, bought me a really nice uh, lathe for my birthday. Unfortunately, now it's just a question of time. It's like, oh, I could do yeah. this, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. These are all really easy. And I went out and bought a whole bunch of aluminum stock and steel stocks. So I'm ready to do stuff, but now it's just time. Um, kind of like in a different progression than you. And I would say an opposite progression. I grew up in the race shop and all of those things were accessible, the lathes, the mills, the welders and all of that. And, and I'm kind of at a point now where I don't, I don't get any enjoyment from that anymore because it's always been work, you know, it's something that I've had to do. And now I'm at the point where I'm kind of moving away to from the motorcycles that require the work or, you know, just like putting it off altogether and really kind of focusing on the enjoying the ride. And so I probably have more motorcycles now that don't require any work than I did in the past, just because mm -hmm. I'm just losing the interest in doing it nowadays. Yeah. The lathe I, I think sits more than it gets used now. My, my garage is theoretically a, a two car garage, but it's like, 18 by 18, maybe, <laughs> you know, so it's a, theoretically it's a two car garage, but it's really a one car garage. And as my car sits in there now with everything else that I have in there, yeah. um, there is no room to work. And so once, once the car is out, then I can like pull stuff out and move things around. And then there's some room to work. And, uh, there is, there is something to going out for an hour, just even for an hour and just tinkering with stuff. And, you know, you turn the Turn the radio on or you you know plug in the iPod into the stereo I have out there and listen a little bit or just whatever get the hell out of the house because I, since I work from home just even like going from the house to the garage is like an accomplishment some days you know yeah. um, so there so is there there is some there is some therapy to that but it's also unheated uninsulated so being in you know in southeast Michigan there's only about five months out of the year six months out of the year where that's even viable so yeah. Um, to have a, a space in, in the basement I could set up or, you know, whether it's a walkout basement or just in a basement or just a regular normal size two car garage. Looking forward to something like that so that I can actually um, have space to do things. Yeah, you know, it's nice to have for sure. And so I definitely enjoy having the space and the tools and the knowledge and the ability and all that to do it. And so I wouldn't trade that for anything. But maybe a whole garage full of motorcycles that didn't require any work at all. <laughs> that yeah. might be the, the well, sole trade. <laughs> I have to say that in the middle of this whole fiasco with the CL125, uh, I noticed Kimco was going to bring the K-pipe that I had talked about earlier to the United States, mm -hmm. which is a 125, four-speed, doesn't weigh a lot. Oh, man, for, I could probably get a grand for that, you know, once I get it running. And I could just go out and buy something that's brand new that's going right. to do the exact same thing and just not have to worry about it. Yeah. 
So I think that there's a solution for all of our problems, and that is that we all just go buy a TW200. <laughs> Well, was, just buy a TWC hundred and be done with it. But there, when we were forty five hundred dollars, there's a whole lot I could do with forty five hundred dollars if I had that to put into my projects. When we were talking about it earlier at the top of the show, I just went onto Craigslist locally and just typed, uh, or I'm All sorry, right. I just I just opened up motorcycles in the the category, and what was the first thing that I saw was a TW two hundred. That was yeah. the very first. It was a 12 model for, I think, $3,300 at a, at a dealer. And I think the cheapest one I saw on there was a 07 for like $2,500. Yeah. So with $4,500, if you're a good negotiator, Pete, you could buy two TW200s <laughs> to well, answer your question. You know, t- talking about workspace, I think that's another issue for me because <laughs> we, have a, we have a raised ranch with a drive-in basement that's 14 by 36. It's a tandem garage. But once you put in a riding lawnmower and two spiders uh, and uh, everything that my mother-in-law needed to get out of her house when she moved into an assisted living apartment, I have an 8 foot by 12 foot area in which to work. And unfortunately, it's right under our kitchen and bedroom. So anything that's either loud or dusty or creates fumes or bad odors and stuff, I I can't do it. And you end up doing exactly what you said, Eric. You go down and you tinker, and you come up with some good ideas, and you go, well, I can't do that right now. And so someday I'd love to have a dedicated shop, either a detached garage somewhere on the property or go rent an industrial space somewhere that I could use. But then you have the whole, well, okay, I've only got an hour and a half. I really can't go there, do something, and come back. Uh, I just won't do it. I've thought about one of those spaces. Um, They can be had around here for, you know, 800 to 1,200 square feet for anywhere between $600 to $1,100 a month. And I've thought about it in the sense, if nothing else, of like, well, then move your office out of your house and use that as your office and have a real office. The problem is, is that I can't justify that cost. Either, you know, for for an outside office or for an outside garage, you know. You can get yeah. a lot of work done for you on your bike or just go buy a really nice bike for $1,100 a month. Yeah. yeah, that is absolutely true. And even, I, I don't know if you guys would find yourself in this similar situation, but I have uh, access to the race shop, which is away from the house. But I still find myself working on the motorcycles at the house because it is a little bit more convenient. And then like Pete, you said, then there's the exhaust smell, you know, from the garage getting into the house and there's the noise of it all. And then you end up having all of your stuff at your house instead of at your shop. I don't know. I don't think that having a a shop at a, you know, either whether you're renting one or uh, you buy a piece of land and, and move a shop onto it. I don't know if there's really a lot of gains to be had unless you're a pretty serious motorcycle mechanic. When I was a bachelor living up in Idaho, I bought a really nice two-bedroom townhouse that wasn't huge. It was like, I don't know, I think it was uh, around 1,000 square feet. But it had a 24 by 24 detached garage behind it. And I was like, oh, that's what I want. So I, at one point I had 11 motorcycles in various stages from brand new to parts bikes that were never going to run. I came back to Kansas City, got rid of everything. And the only thing I held on to 
was my CB350F, which was my favorite. And I kept it on a little pedestal in the basement for a while until I started feeling really, really guilty. It was kind of like what you said earlier about they're designed to be used. I was going to ruin this thing. And I just loved the exhaust note so much that I really wanted it to get run. So I... That's when I sold it to the aircraft mechanic who still has it, and I'm very pleased to know that he's taken good care of it all these years. And the clamp-on muffler from my old Bultaco Road Racer, which I still have, which is going to go on my new bike whenever I get the exhaust built for it. It's <laughs> going to be the one legacy part on that. As I said, my none of my family was mechanical. I didn't have a, a gearhead dad. Mm-hmm. and part of my experience now is because I didn't grow up in a race shop. I want to go through the whole process, whether the bike I end up with is junk or not, doesn't really matter. I'd like to get it running. I'd like to be able to take it down the street, hopefully drive it all the way to work and back and commute on it one time and reliably know it'll get me to work. That's the ultimate goal. The whole process of Gee, I don't know how how to to restore a tank, so I guess I'm gonna have to do that. Well, I don't know how to weld in a frame, you know, gusset. I'm gonna have to learn how to do that. I don't know how to turn something on a lathe. I'm gonna have to do that. Going through all those processes that I tackled kind of piecemeal here and there, but never really. There were so many gaps in my technical knowledge that this is really about the learning experience, not about what I'm eventually gonna end up with, which is why it doesn't upset me when I go down and say, well, I haven't done anything in a year and a half. When I got back into it, I said, you know what, this is not going to rule my life. I have a wife and a marriage and a life. I I have to be very careful. I, I cannot obsess about this. When I can, I will. Yeah. I take it this is kind of a learning experience for different uh, skill sets for you. So I you're going to probably learn how to do some TIG welding with it, unless you already know how, and then machining some different parts. Are you going to be comfortable with the motorcycle? Um, when you see something, say you welded a spot and it's not perfect, is that going to bring you a more appreciation of the motorcycle, knowing that that was part of your learning process, do you think? Oh, a- absolutely, because, you know, I could go out and buy a, a bike that was 10 times nicer or I could spend a bunch of money and and have a professional do everything. Yeah. That's not the point of this. The point is I know what it takes. And I, even things like with using my, my cruddy little, uh, it's not cruddy welder. It's, it's a nice Clark, uh, spool gun welder, but with no gas and cruddy welding wire in it. Um, Mm -hmm. I was welding on my shock mount, my forward shock mount, there's nowhere to mount on the frame. So I took quarter inch uh, aluminum plate and cut out the shape that I needed to bolt it to the frame tube. But where the frame tubes were, I went ahead and uh, drilled through them and then put in bungs that went all the way through that I bolt the plates on either side of them. I welded those in, but if those welds break, if I've done really crappy welds with no penetration, all that's going to happen is those plates can shift back and forth maybe a quarter of an inch. So I'm doing everything so that I don't kill myself on it. And then the heart of this process is not only how do you do this, but how do you engineer something that is within your capabilities in a home shop? Because I can come up with these really 
fantastic ideas that either cost a million dollars or they take a CNC machine to do it. And it's like, no, part of this is figuring out what can I do in my shop. And there, there were some things before I had a lathe, I did have somebody else turn down a Suzuki front axle to be my, uh, swing arm pivot it was right length but i needed one side of it stepped down so i was like well can you do that and i had a friend of mine who has a lathe do that for me and uh i had one part of the the steering stem i had machined by a professional because it wasn't just something i was going to try and do turning the whole uh bottom triple clamp and steering stem in a lathe and getting it right was not something i was comfortable with yeah yeah and that's a good point there are definitely things that when building a motorcycle especially out of a home garage there are things that the home mechanic can definitely focus on and do well and and build a good motorcycle there are a few things that even myself i'll have somebody do i don't like uh doing the work on suspension parts um like valving and things like that those are things that I just don't have enough experience with to know that I'm going to do right the first time. You know, generally other things I'll do myself, but for um, a garage mechanic, somebody that's working on a motorcycle, uh, most steering components, machining tasks, there's definitely, um, there's no shame in having somebody else do it. I don't think that that detracts from how much of the motorcycle you can say you did yourself if you just have certain things here and there that are uh, performed for you. In anything, there is always somebody better than you. And on CafeRacer.net, there's so many people that have posted these horrible, horrible, (laughs) just unsafe, stupidly modified motorcycles. And they're like, yes. And they get really upset when you tell them all the things that are wrong with it. They want to come on and have somebody go, wow, that's really cool. And just kind of, you know, stroke their ego. And... I know my motorcycle is going to be the suckiest bull taco in the world when I get done with <laughs> I, it. I but, doubt it. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is to learn yeah. something in the process. And right. everybody needs to have that attitude because, you know, unless you're uh, Alan Milliard who can, who can, you know, cut pieces of engines apart and weld them back together so they have different number of cylinders or some of the other guys, uh, Anakit, I think his name is the guy that does the uh, musket V twin. Go look at go look at what Geekulan. He works for for Tectois, um, but he's he's uh, like his own mad genius stuff that he's built on his own. Uh, it's kind of same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so I mean, there's those people out there that professional machinists are in awe of. Yeah. And that can actually produce the stuff they dream up. And then there's the rest of us. So everybody yeah. is on a descending scale from there. Everybody's on a lower rung than somebody else. So you have to come in with a lot of humility and go, you know what? No matter how good I ever get, I need to listen to people who know more than I do. Yeah, absolutely. Probably should uh, wrap it up. So thank you guys for being here. And I don't know what's up next week, but uh, it'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Always is. So long. <laughs> <laughs>